Um, If you have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 24 tonight. We're going to cover 24 through 26, not reading all of the chapters um, in the text that we're going to be looking over tonight um, as we continue Paul's story. Um, So we'll kind of hit the high spots and kind of finish off this portion of the story. Uh, We've spent several weeks now talking about Paul's determination to return to Jerusalem to preach the gospel to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, remember, he got saved, got on the mission field, um, went all around the Roman Empire, Greece, and, and, and throughout parts of Turkey, um, planting churches. And then Paul kind of, God came to him, and he kind of knew where he, things were going. He knew that his, uh, the end of the road was coming. Uh, so he made a commitment. He made a decision. We're going to go back to Jerusalem um, because... I want to share my story with my Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, they've they rejected Jesus. They've rejected the church so far. But if they can hear my story, I'm sure I can win somebody. Uh, because after God has changed my heart, I know he can change theirs. Because Paul, of course, was one of them, right? He was one of uh, those Jews that rejected Jesus because the way he interpreted the law and the way he interpreted the Old Testament, he thought Jesus wasn't the answer, but he came to himself and came to the uh, the the conclusion that Jesus was, in fact, um, the fulfillment of the old and the beginning of something new. Um, but also, we lo- we learned last week that Paul's long game, Paul's really, you know, his his goal was to get to Rome. So we talked about last week, why would he go to Jerusalem if he wanted to go to Rome ultimately? Well, we also learned a few weeks back that the because of a lot of the unrest between the Jewish communities and the churches that were starting all around the empire, Rome had expelled Jews from the, uh, from the main territory and from much of the surrounding territory. So many of the Jews had been um, expelled from Rome, had been exiled from Rome. Uh, so Paul, as a Jew, wasn't about to be able to walk up to the front door of, 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 of Rome and say, hey, I'm here to share the gospel because as a Jewish man, he w- you know, was part of this kind of investigation going on, trying to figure out what, why are the, there's so much unrest in the synagogues and what is this church that's, that's beginning. So while the church flourished on the outskirts um, in the mainland, in the main territory of Rome and Greece, the Jews were actually being persecuted by association with the church. So Paul knew that if he could just get to Rome and if he could get the ear of the right people, he could change the scene. He could change the tide and he could actually bring the church even more momentum and actually begin to plant churches there in the Roman mainland. Uh, So Paul had a goal through all this and he actually believed that going to Jerusalem was actually gonna give him a ticket to Rome, which we're going to see how all that plays out tonight. Um, so again, Paul had a, had a heart for God, but he also had a mind that was in sync with God's plan. So clearly he saw all this coming together. And it was so important that he be obedient every step of the way. And we haven't seen him waver yet, and, and he's not about to tonight. So uh, the story has brought us to chapter 24, the closing of 24. Uh, we'll pick up at verse 22 in just a minute. Paul, again, has went from Jerusalem to Caesarea. He was arrested in Jerusalem. Um, there was riots trying to kill him. The Jewish leaders wanted them dead. So the Roman tribune there in Jerusalem sent him to Caesarea where the Roman governor was stationed. Now, remember, Pilate was the Roman governor during Jesus's life. Um, his replacement um, is a man named Felix. And Pilate's 
palace was in Caesarea, Felix is in his office at this point in history. So the Roman governor um, has brought Paul to Caesarea and Paul was again sent there by the local tribune in Jerusalem when he found out he was a Roman citizen. Since he was a Roman citizen, uh, the, the tribune did not want any, you know, any a mess of the matter because as a Roman citizen, Paul deserved a fair trial, which is not something that Jesus got, of course. Um, so the governor, Felix, um, brings Paul there, talks to Paul, doesn't really know what to do with him. Uh, the Jewish people come up there and the, the Jewish leaders come up to, Paul, uh, to the trial and, and they bring their case. And Felix knows that even though Paul is innocent uh, of the charges that are being brought against him, Felix knows that these religious leaders are so, for lack of a better word, bloodthirsty for Paul that they want him dead. And if he lets Paul loose, then they're just going to hunt him down and kill him. And if that happens, uh, then Rome is going to get upset because of all the unrest and all the riots. So Felix makes a decision to just keep Paul in prison because that's really the only solution. He doesn't want to kill Paul because he feels like Paul's innocent, unlike what Pilate did before. He doesn't want to kill the man because he doesn't think that he's worthy of that. He's not even worthy of being in prison. But Felix makes a decision really for his own skin. I don't want to deal with a bunch of unrest. I don't want to be under Rome's investigation. So I'm just going to put him away and hopefully this will all blow over. And eventually... I'll let him free and tell him to get out of here and, and, and let's not get any more trouble. Um, so uh, Paul was kept in prison at Caesarea for tw two years. Uh, and again, he was supposed to have a full and final trial, but it kept getting delayed for, particular, uh, for peculiar reasons. Uh, Felix had, over time, kept bringing Paul before him uh, because he, we'll find out in the scripture that we read tonight, Felix had heard about Christianity. Of course, it was growing in his backyard. He couldn't miss it. Felix knew the story of Jesus and Pilate and all the stuff that had went on. Felix had heard about Christianity and was so fascinated by this movement that just would not die. Uh, Jesus was killed and yet the movement got bigger after his death and everyone claims he's still alive. And how did, what did that even mean? And the church grew and grew and grew. And now right in front of him was one of the, if not the sole reason for the church booming beyond Jerusalem into the parts of Turkey into Greece, into the Roman Empire. So Felix, we find out, begins bringing Paul before him. We don't know how often, but very often, frequently. And he begins asking questions to Paul. Over time, he becomes fascinated and obsessed with knowing as much as he can about Christianity. And he just can't get enough of what Paul has to say and Paul has to teach him. So it almost seems as if Felix never wanted to close the case because he liked having Paul at his beck and call. It almost is like Felix doesn't want to, you know, put a stamp on it because he doesn't want to lose this connection with Paul because as we find out, he had actually grown quite fond of Paul and really, really liked what Paul had to talk about and, and, and offers. So it's with that premise that we jump in Acts 24, verse 22 through 26, we'll read. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, the way is Christianity, that's what they called it back in the early days, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he kind of just comes up with a, with a flimsy excuse. He says, well, I got to talk to the tribune about this, and we're not going to settle this trial for a little while. Verse 23, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide 
uh, fight for or visit him. So by had liberty, Paul was in jail, but he wasn't like, you know, in solitary confinement. He was in the complex there as a prisoner. Most likely he was a slave that would do things around town um, as, a, as a prisoner, as a, you know, as, as one of the uh, captives, but he wasn't, you know, like locked away like he could have been. 24. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So Felix calls Paul back and he begins to hear Paul tell this story again and again. And verse 25 tells us, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Or maybe the better word is he was alarmed. He was shook up and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you or I will bring you back. Meanwhile, he, was, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul that he might release him. So he also thought Paul might try to bribe him at some point. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So we don't know much, but across this two-year period, Felix is just kind of bringing Paul in every once in a while, and he kind of just dangles his freedom in front of him. But Paul knows what's going on, but Felix thinks that he's got all the power in the room. But really deep down, Felix is so alarmed by the message that Paul is preaching, the message of Jesus, the message of salvation, the message of, you know, a, a judgment to come and how Christ is the only hope. He's so intrigued by all this, he just can't quit asking Paul questions and talking to Paul and hearing Paul preach about Jesus, yet he does not want to make it personal. So we kind of have this really powerful series of verses. Verse 25 says that, says that he sent Paul away for a convenient time that he would hear him again. And then verse 26 says that he heard him again and again and again and again. So Felix would summon Paul and they would have these cordial conversations about Jesus, the Bible, faith, and all sorts of things. But Felix never intended to actually make it his own or make it personal. So what we gather from this is Felix never became a believer. Uh, he was just intrigued and he couldn't quit asking questions and acquiring information about the faith. And the key verse, I think Luke wants to send us a, an underlying message or is trying to send us a message through is verse 25. Where we're told that Felix was alarmed, taken aback, deeply moved by all that Paul had to talk about. But he did not make it personal because it just was not convenient for him. Verse 26 tells us that he really expected Paul to start to bribe him. Perhaps he was just perplexed that Paul kept talking to him without want for personal gain. I think that's the idea there, that Paul kept coming. He never asked to be free, even though he was innocent, and even though he tried to let him go before. He never asked to be free. He kept coming before him, and Paul would talk about Jesus and would preach the Bible and preach the gospel and go through all the questions that he had, but never once did Paul say, what are you going to do for me? And I think that kind of just blew Felix's mind. Why would this man come week after week after week? Every time I ask him to come, he comes. Of course, he's a prisoner, but still he's not obstinate. He's not stubborn. He's cooperative. He's nice. He's cordial. He's a friend of mine, and he never asked anything from me. You know why I think that was especially hard for Felix to understand is because he was a politician. And like most politicians or like really any worldly person, it's all about gain. It's all about progress. Nobody does anything for the kindness or the goodness of their heart. They do it because they want something. But here's Paul, time after time, he comes and preaches Jesus and is just a friend to Felix. We don't know if this was week after week, but clearly it was more than just once or twice 
Felix couldn't get enough of Paul's faith, yet apparently it required too much of him to make it his own faith. He says, when I have a more convenient time, I will talk to you again. And even though he kept talking, he never made it personal. You know, there are several figures like this in the Bible who have the ear of the men or the women of God in their time. They love associating with them, but they never took the next step. Uh, The demand was too high. The cost was too great. Remember the story of Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh loved talking to Moses about God. He loved having Moses in front of him. And he always promised Moses, I'll be different this time. I'll change this time. I'll be easier on your people this time. But Pharaoh never did, right? And even when he let them go, he recanted and chased after them, ended up costing him him, his life right but Pharaoh and Moses had this really weird relationship one minute Pharaoh was against Moses but the next minute he was hoping he would come back and be a friend to him he loved being so close to somebody that had the ear of God you remember there was Saul and David Saul loved having David in his palace playing the harp being on his uh, you know being a part of his military being his son-in-law at one point Saul loved David, being there for him and being there with him. But Saul never changed his own heart. And he died making a fool of himself on the battlefield. You know the story of Herod and John the Baptist. The Bible says that John, uh, that Herod loved hearing John the Baptist preach. He brought him before him again and again and again. Finally, um, Herod's uh, wife slash girlfriend slash it was really an incestuous kind of love triangle if you read that story it's kind of it's it, it, it's really um, interesting but finally the the woman that that Herod had fell, fallen in love with um, his brother's wife uh, Herod's the, the woman convinces Herod to kill John the Baptist and even though Herod loved John and enjoyed his preaching he ended up killing him So the relationship between Felix and Paul fits the mold of what we see throughout the Bible. Um, These these men of God who uh, would be there for these powerful people, but they never would respond in a personal way. This relationship between Felix and Paul fits that mold. Um, and, And the common thread is that these men with so much power, wealth and fame, knew they lacked something in their hearts. And that, isn't that interesting that these men, Pharaoh ruled the world, Saul, king of Israel, um, Herod, king of the region. These men had power and they would lean on the, the minds of these relative nobodies. Um, even in some cases, their enemies, they would bring these men into their presence and they would love listening to them because even though these men, these kings, Herod, uh, uh, Pharaoh, Saul, even though they had power and wealth and all the fame, they knew they were missing something in their hearts. They sought information about the one true God and found someone that they could pick their brain of and ask all kinds of questions to. Faithfully, Moses and David and John and then Paul in this story, faithfully served these men going above and beyond with patience and grace, continually coming before them. Yet it wasn't enough. Not that their message wasn't enough, it clearly was, but it wasn't a convenient time for those they ministered to. And almost all of their stories end like verse 27 tells us. After two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. 
Now, Felix doesn't meet his doom like Pharaoh and Saul did, nor does he have Herod, he have Paul killed like Herod did John. In this case, Felix's time as governor comes to an end. He was removed by Rome for not keeping the peace of the land like they had expected him to, uh, which is what he was afraid of all along. I'm sure he thought he would always have Paul right down the road, ready to call him at any point and hear him talk about his faith. But alas, that wasn't the case. He ran out of time. You know, a couple of things I think we can draw from and we should draw from this text is, number one, faith is personal, not vicarious or indirect. Vicarious means something that we live through somebody else, something that we get through somebody else, or something that we experience through somebody else. Faith is personal. So many people are like Felix. They live through someone else or by someone else's experience. It may be a preacher, a family member. It may be by being a part of the greater church body they gather with um, or through the association with an organization. The Bible makes it very clear, though. Faith must be personal. There's nothing wrong with having a relationship with someone like Felix did with Paul where you admire them and follow them. But if your faith is non-existent without them, your faith is non-existent. Does that make sense? If your faith is non-existent when you don't have that person or you don't have those people, then your faith is non-existent. If it's not your faith, if it's their faith and you don't have them anymore and you don't have any faith, again, it wasn't personal. The Bible makes it very clear that faith is personal, that we can't live through someone else or we can't, you know, experience through somebody else or just be a part of the body, which is important. It still is not enough. The Bible makes it very clear. Famously, Romans, 9, Romans 10 verse 9, Paul writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice what we've got here. If you confess with your mouth in your heart, you will be saved. So don't, I mean, we can't get any more personal than that, right? It can't be more clear than that. It's about our personal confession, our personal belief, our personal experience. Now, of course, we're a part of something bigger than just us, but we must get into it and enter into it and remain in it in a personal relationship with Jesus. Of course, salvation is described just like that as a personal relationship, a personal experience. Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As in, he's not just living through the church in some ambiguous way. He's living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you, do you see there, Paul says, I in me, because it's personal. I hope that makes sense. I don't think it can be any clearer than that. The Bible's full of many other reminders like those. The whole other message, there's a whole other message here in how we don't put our faith or derive our faith from mere women or men. We worship God and live by faith in Jesus. But in Felix's case, he wasn't worshiping Paul uh, in the place of Jesus. He was just getting warm by Paul's fire, if you will. He did not have a fire of his own. In colleges and universities, um, if you're looking to enroll or wanting to sort of test the waters, uh, but you don't want to commit 
mainly the tuition, but if you don't want to commit to the full you know, experience, um, there's such a thing as auditing the course. I remember there were several people uh, that uh, in, in college and grad school, there would be people that would just visit for one class or sometimes they would come for the whole semester. Um, and, and basically this means you take the course uh, you're, or a part of the course, uh, but you aren't given any credit. And you don't take the test, and you, but you also don't get the credit for the course. You're doing it for exploration, really. And you learn something along the way, right? But it's not any credit to you. It doesn't benefit you in terms of the academic way. So here's the, the message I think Luke is trying to give us through this message of Felix. And I think he is imploring us tonight, may we not be these kind of Christ followers, May we not settle for auditing Christianity, but we, may we make it personal and actually get the benefits of following Jesus for real. You see, auditing the faith is something that is quite common and quite, quite you know, relative, relevant for our world today. This sort of faith might scratch the itch or ease the conscience from week to week or visit to visit, sermon to sermon. However, we're just hovering around it but it doesn't go with us. The reason most people stop short of making it personal is, again, the cost is just too great. The demand seems too high. It's just too inconvenient, and that's Felix's excuse, isn't it? When I have a more convenient time, I'll bring you back in, but until then, I love that I can just bring you in week after week because I kind of am living through your faith, Paul. But it was just too high of a demand for him to make it personal, which brings me to the second point I think we draw from this story. Number two, following Jesus will never be convenient. If you're waiting for following Jesus to be a convenient thing, it's never gonna be convenient. Now, if it's presented to you as such, it's probably a watered-down, cheap, imposter uh, version or imposter invitation. Felix was waiting on a convenient season, a more opportune time, but that day never came, and it never will come. A am I saying that following Jesus is not the best decision you'll ever make? Am I saying that surrendering to God is not somehow, is, is somehow a negative thing? Am I saying the Bible doesn't reveal an infinite number of reasons as to why you should follow Jesus and as to why you should surrender to God with your whole heart? No, I'm not saying any of that. By all means, following Jesus and surrendering to God is the best decision you can make. I can preach all night about why following Jesus and surrendering to God is the greatest positive you can make in your life. And what you've heard me as much, right? The Bible is full of reasons and reveals so many reasons and promises and blessings to us. So by no means am I saying, when I say it's inconvenient, by no means am I saying that it's negative for you to do it, that it's not the best decision. Of course it's the best decision you can make. Of course following Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. Of course. But I'd be, I'd be lying to you if I didn't also tell you that alongside all these things, following Jesus will be the most inconvenient thing for you to do. It will be the most inconvenient thing you ever do. You know why? Because our nature is not Christian. Our nature is opposed to God and everything about him. Our nature is not you know, automatically ready to sign up for what Jesus is all about, even though he promises us everything we could ever ask for. Our nature still resists it. 
As we are in this world and we often try to keep one foot in this world, chasing after this world's dreams and convictions, standing by this world's kingdoms, politically, economically, and all the things of this world, agendas of this world, it, we need to make it very clear that following Jesus will challenge every idea and institution of this world. And if we cannot let go of them, it will be inconvenient. We don't know why Felix thought it was not convenient for him, but I don't have to ask too many questions. I don't have to think too much about why it was inconvenient because it's as inconvenient for me and you. It's inconvenient for all of us. Rooted in the ideas of this world, rooted in the institutions of this world, it is inconvenient for us to follow God because let's be honest, we're all sinners. We're all fleshly creatures tied to this world. Following Jesus will always be inconvenient. If we listen to our flesh, if we, and of course we all do, don't we? We don't have the time. We don't have the money. We don't have the ability. We don't have the energy to give him our whole heart, which is why we try to give him just 10%. We try to give him just a day. We try to give him a little bit of our free time. But Jesus never made following him a convenient thing. Now, we've looked at this scripture many, many times, but I don't hold it back from the church because it's true. It's the Bible. Luke, of course, writing Acts, wrote the gospel of Luke where Jesus makes following him, uh, makes the cost of following him very clear, even in uncomfortable ways sometimes. Jesus said in Luke 14, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let's stay on that one for a minute. Let me make sure that we know what this says and what it does not say. Because there, there are people who, you know, forsake their families, but still live for themselves. That's not following Jesus, Okay. That's just following, that's just idolizing yourself or lifting yourself up. You know what Jesus is saying here? That if we're gonna follow him, we have got to make him more important than anything else. Now, if we're all doing that, then we all understand that we're doing this for him, not for us, not for me, not for you, not for nobody else, but for him. When Jesus says you must hate your father and mother and wife and children, what is he saying? That your love for God must seem so astronomically higher that your love for anybody or anything else seems like hate in comparison. Now, there are some Bibles and some people that might try to change that and water that down, but that's the truth of that statement. That's what Jesus is saying. Of course, the Christian message is love one another, right? This isn't saying that you should not love people, but it's trying to show us what our devotion to Christ should look like. And Jesus goes on to teach us about that in this next verse. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. So what is Jesus saying there? Bearing your cross is in what was the electric chair of their day. Denying themselves, denying ourselves, and following him. Count the cost. Of course, we know that doing so leads us to the best possible life. But in our flesh, we push back against that cost. You see, nobody, nobody, nobody wants to give God all. Some, that's good. You know, I surrender some is not the song though, right? Nobody wants to give God all. We want to minimize sacrifice and maximize blessings. And of course, there are many blessings. Of course, there are. But the truth be told is ignoring the fact 
Minimizing sacrifice ignores the fact that some of the greatest blessings come as results of sacrifice. Now, we've talked a lot about this in Acts, the surpassing worth that comes from following Jesus. Nobody preached that more clear and more straight than Paul. No one embodied the true spirit of Christianity more than Paul did, which is why Felix was confronted with his undiluted message and which is why he said, maybe another time. And then one day, he ran out of time. Have you ever procrastinated about something? We all have, haven't we? That seemed like it just demanded too much, but you knew the whole time you put it off, you knew you really should give it your attention. You see, Felix procrastinated the most important decision of his life. We are all prone to do this, if not for the Holy Spirit's work of conviction. And, and the Holy Spirit is the one and only one who gives us the power to turn our hearts loose from sin and to wash the illusion of this world away. We must heed his conviction, lest we too run out of time. And more on that in a minute before we run out of time. So let me kind of summarize what happens next. Felix is replaced by Festus, and Festus wonders why this case is outstanding. And with this new guy in office, being the new guy in office, the Jewish leaders are knocking his door down saying, hey, will you settle this case? Will you turn Paul loose so that we might, you know, kill him and take him into our own hands? Uh, so Festus looks into the paperwork and looked into the, the history of the case, and he summons Paul. And he hears the different sides of the coin, and he finally says, listen, Paul, you, Paul, listen, to the, listen you, Paul is innocent. He dismisses the Jewish accusations, and he tells Paul, you'd be wise to leave this area. You're innocent, but they're going to kill you if you stay around here. And then Paul, once again, goes beyond where anyone of this world would. He doesn't accept his sentence, his freedom. He files an appeal in the court of Caesar. Since he was a Roman citizen, he had the right to do that. Even though Festus says, you're free. Paul says, I want to take this case to Caesar. And why would you do that? You're a free man. You're an innocent man. If you go before Caesar, he's going to kill you for wasting his time. Once again, what gain would this bring him? It would just keep him in prison longer and it would lead to him being shipped to Rome on a boat. Paul appealed to Caesar and was bound to be shipped on a boat to Rome and that's exactly what he wanted because this was going to get him through the door to the place he wanted to be. Doesn't this highlight the commitment to the gospel that Paul had? He could have walked away a free man with a new lease on life, but no, he was set on reaching the ends of the world for Jesus. He was getting to Rome no matter what it took, so he appealed to Caesar. Now this baffles Festus so much that when his friend and co-regent of the area, Agrippa, comes over, he has to tell him about it. Now Agrippa is also known as Herod Agrippa II who was the son of Herod Agrippa that we read about in Acts 12, the, grand, the grandson of Herod that ruled during Jesus' ministry, and the great-grandson of Herod from the Christmas story. So Herod's family had a small portion of Judea that they had power over, but they were sort of kind of in co-regent with Rome because of Caesar's friendship with Herod years ago. Um, the family was given this little portion of the land to rule. So long story short, Herod and Festus were friends because they co-ruled the region. So Agrippa comes over for wine and to wine and dine with Festus, and Festus just has to tell him about this Jewish man who is a part of this weird movement called the church following the Jewish carpenter that was killed. And as Festus tells this to Agrippa, Agrippa is shaken up by this because his family has been on the periphery of the story all along. 
his great-grandfather had tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, but couldn't. His grandfather had condemned him to be crucified alongside Pilate, but he rose again. And Agrippa's father fought the resilient church, killed James, arrested Peter, but Peter was released from that prison. And Herod, Agrippa I, was eaten by worms. Can you imagine what Agrippa thought as he sat there next to this man, hearing about this story of this man who was resilient in his faith as a part of this movement that was resilient, as a part of this following of Jesus, this man that his family had tried to kill and put silence for years, and yet he would not go away. The church would not go away. I'm sure Agrippa thought about this every single day. Every one of his predecessors had interfaced and crossed paths with Jesus, and now it was his turn to meet one of Jesus' disciples. Maybe Agrippa would finally get the last word. That's what he was hoping for. He might finally put a stop to this movement. He would get the credit. Perhaps he would settle a score. His family had unfinished business with, with Jesus and his church, and indeed there was unfinished business. And that is what plays out in the end of the story. This meeting that happens between Paul and Agrippa was inconsequential. Paul was already going to Caesar. Agrippa could not change the story. He thought he could, but he couldn't. Paul was already going to Caesar. Festus was going to make sure that happened. But he allows Agrippa. Agrippa says, hey, can I see this man? Can I hear this man? Can you make it look like I'm a big deal? And can you make Paul come in here with chains on? And can you make him address me as king? If you read the whole story, Agrippa just wants to take, you know, for some reason wants to power play this moment. And if you understand the background because of what this movement and his fathers and his grandfathers had all had, you know, dealings with, you can kind of see that Agrippa is kind of angry and kind of wants to have the last word about this movement and about Jesus. So he brings Paul before him in chains. Agrippa is just curious about the whole matter and maybe thinking he can put an end to it. But we know that in the kingdom of God, nothing is inconsequential. Everything is an appointment and an opportunity for something life-changing to happen. So Paul takes the chance to pour it all out to Agrippa. If you read Acts 26, the first part of that chapter is just Paul giving his testimony. But Paul appeals to the fact that Agrippa is from a family that is well connected to the Jesus movement. Paul pretty much says this, your great-grandfather, your family has tried to everything to kill Jesus and stop his movement, but their attempts have only fanned the flame of Christianity. And now we're here. I once was an enemy too, and God saved me. And he says, Agrippa, this is your divine appointment. God has brought this all together. You and I are here right now because God has given you a chance to change the page, turn the page, to change the story for your family. Paul gives his testimony. We've heard it before. And then down in verse 19 of chapter 26, he begins to appeal to Agrippa on a personal basis. We'll close by reading those, that, that part of the story. Acts 26, verse 19. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. 
Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, as he made this defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning has driven you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And he looks at Agrippa, and he winks at Agrippa, and he says, Agrippa, your family has tried to stop this movement from the very beginning, and it has not been successful. Your great-grandfather is dead. Your, great, your, grand, your father is dead. All these men tried to stop the Jesus movement. And here I am as a testimony that it cannot be stopped. He goes in hard, passionately, trying to break the cycle of Agrippa's family. He says, Agrippa, this has happened right in front of your eyes. Verse 27, Agrippa, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa, your great-grandfather tried to kill him. Your, great, your grandfather tried to kill him. They couldn't kill him. He's alive. You can feel him right now. Your father was eaten by worms trying to stop this movement. I know that you are convinced this is real. And you thought you were just going to parade me in here and make a big thing about it for your own glory, but you know this is more than that. I know that you believe. And Agrippa, gripping the side of his chair, chest pounding, says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Do you know how big that was, that those words came out of this man's mouth? But he was still almost persuaded. Here in this moment, God was set to redeem this dynasty of villains. Herod the Great, Herod the Second, Herod Agrippa all fought against Jesus and his church, and they were all gone, but Jesus and his church were just getting started. And you can feel the gravity of this moment. Herod Agrippa sat in his chair. He thought it was everlasting. He thought he was forever. He thought his family would be household names forever. But Paul looks him in the eyes and says, Agrippa, this is your chance. Your family is exhibit A of how futile it is to resist and fight against Jesus and his church. Paul said earlier, it's hard to kick against the pricks. I too once fought against it and realized that was, that was, that was futile, that was worthless. Agrippa's heart beat with conviction and I think, and I, I think he just could not swallow his pride. He was unwilling to count the cost. He was almost persuaded but not fully convinced. He just couldn't swallow the Herod in him. He just couldn't lay that down. Verse 29. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today not become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And, they'd gone, and when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if, not, if he had not appealed. 
to Caesar. They, they just could not understand why he was so determined for the gospel. Agrippa walks away just like Felix did. One procrastinated, one was almost persuaded, but neither believed. We don't remember any of them for the things they would want you to remember them for. As kings and governors of the region, they probably did a lot of things to make them famous, but we don't remember them for that. 2,000 years later, we remember these men for being so close, but not in Christ. So close, but not in Meanwhile, Paul was in chains, thought to be insane by Festus and Agrippa, but he indeed was the most free man in the room. I think the lesson of this story is that Felix and Agrippa, this lesson looms large over us every single day, that we would not delay, that we would not dismiss the invitation that God has given us, no matter how inconvenient it may be, no matter how much we may feel like is working against us joining the movement or why the reasons we have, why would we delay this? It's like God said to those that failed to take the promised land when it was right in front of them. The Holy Spirit says to us, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the day. Now is the favorable time. The message to us from this chapter, even Christians, we need to hear this, is that we make it personal, that we make it real that we make it count. Today is the opportune time. May we be fully convinced and fully committed like Paul was, even though he was bound and chained, he was more bound in Christ, he was more secure in Christ. May we not be like Felix or Agrippa, who were almost, but not fully, who were so close, but not in. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this very sobering message from your word about these two men who no doubt were very famous in their day, very powerful in their day, but we don't remember them for any of those things. We remember them as footnotes of your story. We remember them as people who did not have the time or did not have the will to put you first. Lord, it's amazing that you gave Agrippa this chance to write his story, to write the ship of his family. You gave Felix a chance to make it personal, but both were not fully persuaded, both procrastinated, both put it off. Lord, may you move our hearts tonight and may you make us fully committed, fully persuaded, fully committed to this movement and to this call that Jesus has put over our lives. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing story that shows us how you work in every season and you work in every story and you are always putting together divine appointments to perform miracles one heart at a time. Thank you for Paul's testimony. May it change our hearts and may it give us passion to put you first. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.